Thank you for checking out this sermon video here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. You are joining us for our series called Radical Red Letters, Kingdom Living in a Chaotic Land. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text new to hope to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today and enjoy the sermon. In the 1500s, the most commonly held belief about the universe was that the earth was the center of the solar system. In the mid-1500s, most many experts and scientists believed that the planet that we inhabit was the hub, if you will, of the entire universe. To take it a step further, most believed that the earth was constant, meaning the earth stayed in one place and everything else in the universe revolved and orbited around the earth. Max Lucado, in a book, writes about it this way. He said, until 1543, we earthlings enjoyed center stage. Fathers could place their arms around their children, point to the night sky, and proclaim the universe revolves around us. It's a very commonly held belief, but... The book that I'm holding, and this is actually obviously not an original copy, this book was released in 1543 by a man named Nicholas Copernicus. And Nicholas Copernicus was one of the first to reveal to the world that the sun and not the earth was the center of our solar system. And this discovery was revolutionary. It led us to understanding not only was the earth not the center of the solar system, the sun was, the earth was not constant. We, we then later learned the earth rotates on its axis every 24 hours and it orbits around the sun in the solar system every 365 days. And yet, even with Copernicus's book and this revelation, for the next 50 years, many people still denied that truth. I know what you may be thinking. Pastor, why are you giving us an astronomy lesson, right? Well, here's why. I want us to understand and recognize that the society that we live in has wrapped its heart around an equally false narrative. And here's the narrative. We believe everything revolves around us. As human beings, particularly as individuals in the United States of America, we believe that the world revolves around us. A quick snapshot of our culture reveals a self-serving, convenience-pursuing, I'm first, it's all about me, I'm the center of the universe way of living. 
And one of the reasons today that our society is so divided is because of our deep-rooted desire for individual rights. And I'm not saying whether you're on the right or the left. It's the same. We have a deep-rooted desire for our individual rights that is largely born out of this mindset, I want what I want, and I really don't care how it affects you. To be honest, you have to look no further than this week's presidential debate that more resembled two preteen boys fighting over who should be first in the lunch line than it did world leaders discussing substance with civility and dignity. As honest as I can be, as I watched that event, I was never more grateful for the truth that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, for our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of another kingdom. Here's what that means. Ultimately, this world is not our home, and this world is not our hope. And that's why in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, when Jesus described what it meant to follow him, it was anything but what we see in today's culture. As a matter of fact, when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he opened his mouth and began to call his followers to a radical and altogether different way of life than what they had seen in culture. As a church family, we are walking through the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. We opened this a few weeks ago, and I gave you a definition of what a beatitude is. I'm going to put it back up here on the screen. But before I read it, I want to remind you, when Jesus went up on the mountain and began to teach his disciples these beatitudes, the text opens saying when Jesus saw the crowd. He looked out at society. He looked out at humanity. He saw the chaos. He saw the confusion. He saw the hurt, and he pulled his disciples up on a mountain, and in response to to what he saw, he began to speak to them this radically different way of living. And here's what we define the Beatitudes as, eight radical declarations of kingdom living. What we're reading is Jesus in contrast to the backdrop of the world describing what it looks like for the kingdom of God that's really our home as believers to be fleshed out in our lives. Eight declarations of kingdom living resulting in contentment in the midst of the chaos. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to continue our journey. I'm going to start reading in verse number 1, and we'll read down to the beatitude that we're going to discuss this weekend. When Jesus saw the crowds, there it is. He saw the multitude. He saw what was going on in culture and in society. He went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, began to teach them, saying, he began to speak these radical truths about what kingdom living looks like. 
We've already looked at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Last weekend, we looked at verse 4. Blessed are the poor, or excuse me, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This weekend, I want to focus on verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Read that last beatitude with me out loud. You ready? One, two, three. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, this weekend, I want to do the same thing we've done the last couple of weekends. I want to answer the question, what does it mean to be gentle? And then look at how that expresses itself in our life today. So let's start by asking the question, what does it mean to be gentle? The word that Jesus uses here is the word gentle in our our translation that we read. In many other translations, it's translated with the word meek. Blessed are the meek. Gentle and meek, the words that are often used to translate this Greek word that Jesus uses here, mean something very different than the way we use the word in the English language today. As a matter of fact, if you go and open up one of my favorite websites, I use it all the time. It's called OneLookDictionary.com. It's just OneLook.com. And what it does, it's a dictionary site where you can go and get the definition of a word from about 50 different definitions. And I'm kind of a word nerd, so I like OneLook.com. So I went to OneLook.com and I typed in the word gentle. What is the definition of the word gentle? Here are some of the definitions of that word. Soft delicate, calm, kind, mild, docile, easily handled. If you go to onelookdictionary.com and try to understand what Jesus was saying, you could walk away and think Jesus said, blessed are the wimpy, right? Because that's the way we understand oftentimes this word gentle. The word meek is honestly even worse. When you look up the word meek on onelook.com, that dictionary site, here's the way that word's defined. Deficient in spirit or courage. Not strong. Cowed. And that word means Frightened into submission by intimidation. To the world, meekness is weakness. And gentleness is the quality that means you are everybody else's doormat. So if we just understand this verse, blessed are the gentle, with our contemporary understanding of gentleness, we might think that Jesus here is asking us to be wimpy, have no backbone, to be a doormat that everybody gets to walk on. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the gentle? Well, obviously not. The word gentle that Jesus uses is a Greek word that's only used four times in the entire New Testament. One of them we read right here in Matthew chapter 5. Two other times that it's used, it's used to describe Jesus himself. And I would submit to you today that Jesus was not weak and Jesus was nobody's doormat. 
So if this is a word that's used to describe Jesus, then obviously our contemporary definitions do not capture the meaning of this word. The word gentle here is a word that means strength or power under control. It means not demanding one's own way in a selfishly assertive way. It means to not be overly impressed by one's own self-importance. It means strength under control. One writer, uh, Stuart Briscoe, defined it this way. He said the word gentle means yieldedness. Let me try to help you a little bit more understand it. This word gentle was the word in the Greek language used to describe a horse that had been broken. Think about that. Our youngest daughter, Faith, is now 16 years old, but about five years ago when she was 10, 11 years old, she took for about a year and a half horseback riding lessons. Nothing will test your faith as a father like watching your little blonde-haired, beautiful 10-year-old daughter sit on the back of a beast that literally could destroy her. I mean, this horse is massive. And she took horseback riding lessons for about a year and a half. And in taking horseback riding lessons, she learned much more than just how to ride a horse. She also learned how to care for a horse. And so I I didn't go as often as her mom did. Her mom took her to all the lessons. I went a few times. And one of the times I went and she was doing the thing with the horse, you know, she did her riding stuff. And then when she finished, it was her job to take the horse and brush the horse down and make sure there was nothing in the horseshoes and here's this little girl and this massive horse and she's poking it and prodding it and this horse is just doing every I'm sitting there thinking this horse is literally about to crush you because it had all the strength of a wild stallion and yet now it yielded all of that strength to the control of a little 11-year-old girl who with a little prompt could get that massive animal to do whatever she wanted it to do. Gentleness. How does this apply to my life? Last weekend, I gave you a definition of this idea of mourning. Remember what we said? Here, I'll put it up here just to remind you. Mourning is a brokenness before God born out of truth revealed through my fellowship with him. When we spend time with him, when we grow in intimacy with God, we become more aware of who he is, his holiness, his character, his greatness, his righteousness, and we become broken before him as we realize who we are and how far we are from what he has for us. One expression of brokenness, when we're broken before God, Just like that horse, brokenness produces gentleness. So let me give you a definition of gentleness. It's the overflow of brokenness before God expressed in my surrender to Him and my submission to others. It's not that I'm weak, it's not that I'm soft, it's not that I'm wimpy, 
But having been broken before God, I've now come to a place where I've yielded, I've surrendered the control. I'm no longer the one in control. I'm no longer the one with my hands at the wheel. Because of being broken before God, we surrender the control of our lives to Jesus. And listen, whenever there is real surrender to Jesus this way, it always manifests itself in radical submission to others this way. If what has happened in my life vertically is real, you'll see it expressed in the way I relate to others horizontally. If what I say has happened between me and Jesus isn't changing the way I relate to you, then what I said happened between me and Jesus wasn't what I thought it was. Gentleness, strength under control. So what does it look like for this to be practically lived out in my life? Well, again, we could probably say many things. I'm going to limit it to two. Why do you always limit it to two? Well, two reasons. Number one, it's about as high as I can count. Number two, that's all you're going to remember anyway, all right? So two. Number one, gentleness is demonstrated as I surrender the control of my life to Jesus, and don't miss this, moment by moment. When you and I come to know Jesus, when we became a Christian, Wherever that moment is for you, maybe you were a child, maybe you were a college student, maybe you were an adult, maybe you were in a church service, maybe you were at a crusade, maybe you were watching something online, maybe a friend shared the gospel with you. Whenever it was when you came to know Jesus, what happened is there was a moment of surrender. You realized that you had sinned against God and that your sin separated you from God, you realized that you were not God and that God was God, and you surrendered the control of your life to Jesus. That's why in Romans chapter 10, the Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the, what? Say it out loud if you know it. The Lord, that's important. He didn't say whoever shall call on the name of the Savior will be saved. He said whoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The way to salvation is to realize Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. It's a moment of surrender by faith where I surrender the control of my life to Jesus. But here's what I want you to understand. Surrendering to Jesus is not a once done event in our lives. It happens over and over. I would say daily, but it happens more often than that. Paul described it this way in Romans chapter 12. Look what he said. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a, read it out loud, living and holy what? Did you hear that? It's a little bit of an oxymoron. A sacrifice usually is something that's what? It's dead, right? You sacrifice that, you put it on the altar, it's dead. But he says we are living sacrifices. You know the problem with a living sacrifice? It can crawl off the altar. How often do you and I 
surrender, and then backpedal off the altar. And we have to come to another moment of I'm not saying we weren't genuine when we gave our life to Christ. I'm just saying our flesh is real. And every moment of your life for the rest of your life, you will struggle with this thing of being a living sacrifice. And moment by moment, gentleness as we're brought. That's why this thing of spending time with God is so important. It's in time alone with him that we get broken. And one expression of brokenness in our lives is surrendering again the control of our lives to Jesus. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I die daily. You see, whether you know it or not, or whether you're willing to admit it or not, our will is constantly at war with the will of God. If you believe that, say amen. If you don't, repent, get honest, and say amen. Our will is at war with God's will. And as I'm broken before God, it manifests itself in a yieldedness, meaning a a moment-by-moment surrender. Listen, today there was some stuff in me that my flesh was warring against the will of God. Some days, some moments, I, I win the battle in victory and dependence on Christ and surrender. Other moments, I don't. I choose to sin, and then I get in the presence of God, and in brokenness, God breaks me again, and I make a fresh surrender. Maybe what needs to happen for some of you this weekend is a fresh surrender of the control of your life to Jesus. Listen, you're not the one with your hands on. Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is the plane, the pilot, the air, the universe, and everything else. So first of all, gentleness is demonstrated as I surrender the control of my life to Jesus moment by moment. Here's the second one where I want to spend the rest of our time. Gentleness is demonstrated as I submit to others in my life. Another word to describe the yieldedness required through gentleness is submission. Towards God, a good word is th- that expresses gentleness is surrender. I'm surrendering control. But as I relate to others, the best word I know in Scripture to describe what gentleness, this humble, gentle spirit looks like, is the word submission. Submission is a gentle spirit demonstrated outwardly. It's why Paul When Paul was writing in Ephesians chapter 5, and he gave the command in verse 18 for you and I to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is this same idea of yielding control to the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not some emotional dance that you do. To be filled with the Spirit is to surrender the control of your life to the Holy Spirit of God so that the Holy Spirit of God is now controlling you. In Ephesians 5, when Paul gave that command to be filled with the Spirit, he gave five expressions of what it looked like when we are 
filled with the Spirit. The fifth of those I'm going to show you is Ephesians 5.21. Now, don't miss this. Paul said, be filled with the Spirit. Be surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit. And he said, when you do, here's what it looks like. (coughs) Bring me that bottle of water, Teddy. (coughs) Thank you, sir. It looks like being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Being controlled by the Holy Spirit manifests itself in submission to one another. John Stott writes about it. Listen to what he says. Now the very notion of submission is out of fashion today. It's totally at variance with contemporary attitudes of permissiveness and freedom. Almost nothing is calculated to arouse more angry protest than the talk of subjection. Ours is an age of liberation. And anything savoring of oppression is deeply resented and strongly resisted. How are Christians to react to this modern world? We're to react in submission. Now, let me qualify it. Submission is not a biblical justification for oppression. Submission and oppression are not the same thing. Oppression is a wielding of control from the outside, and it usually manifests itself in cruel, unjust treatment. Oppression is a sinful way of relating to others that says, I am more important than you. Submission is a yielding of control from the inside. Submission is a Christ-like way of relating to others that says, you are more important than me. Let me give you a couple of applications of this idea of submission. First of all, as Christians, we should stand against oppression in all forms. This is part of having a gentle spirit, whether it's spousal abuse, child abuse, ageism, bigotry, racism, classism, xenophobia. We are not, uh, we are not to be or allow others to be in society dominated or oppressed. There's no place in Christianity for a demanding spirit of superiority that manifests itself in the oppression of others. That's why in Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs said it this way in in Proverbs 31. Listen to these verses. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. This attitude that I'm describing of submission is not one that allows oppression to exist in society. But it is an attitude that means, as Christians, we should demonstrate Christ-like submission at all times. This is not a submission that's a cowering response to an outward force. It's an inward disposition in response to the work of the Holy Spirit. It produces a brokenness on the inside. Let me read you another quote from John Stott. Listen to what he said. 
Sometimes a person who claims to be filled with the Spirit becomes aggressive, self-assertive, brash. You ever seen any of that on social media? Listen, but the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit. And those who are truly filled with Him always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is one of their most evident characteristics that they submit to one another. Probably the most defining section of Scripture that I know that exists in the Bible to explain what submission to one another looks like is found in Paul's writings in Philippians chapter 2. I want to put these verses up here on the screen. I want you to listen to what he said. Paul said, do, say that out loud. Say it one more time. Do what? Now, in the Greek language, this is a unique word. It's actually a compound word. It literally means, it's the word not and one put together with a negative. It means do not one thing. Do not one thing from what? Selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind. Listen to what he says. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Why is this the big deal? Listen to what he says last. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what this is describing? This is describing Christ likeness. What it looks like for Jesus to live his life through you means nothing from selfishness, nothing from empty conceit, always considering others more important than myself, not looking out just for my interests, but also for the interests of others. Can I be real transparent? I believe the whole Bible is the word of God. Amen. The whole Bible is the word of God. But listen, If we just live out this, just that, just just three verses out of 66 books of the Bible, if we just let Jesus do this, the world would say, what is that? It's radical. But here's what's happening in the midst of what's going on right now. We're becoming just like the world. We sound like them. We argue like them. We complain like them. We gripe like them. We criticize like them. And they're looking for something different. And Jesus saw it. And he brought his disciples up on a mountain. And he said, blessed are the gentle. For they shall inherit the earth. So let me give you a defining statement about gentleness as it's expressed through our lives. I'm going to put it up here. Gentleness towards others means in every way I relate to you, I consider you more important than me. Let me ask you a question. How would this simple reality change every relationship in your life? Now, don't misunderstand. This is not a statement of value. 
It's not that somebody else is more important. We are all equally created in the image of God. We all have unique purpose and value because we've been created by God. This is not a statement of value. It's a statement of submission. I'm choosing because of Christ in me and because it's who Jesus is, I'm choosing to relate to you in a way that you are more important than me. Here's the problem. Unfortunately, we often relate the exact opposite way. In every way I relate to you, I consider me more important than you. What if we live this out? I can tell you one thing that happened immediately. Twitter would go out of business. This attitude of gentleness is countercultural. We're taught stand up for yourself. You do you. Watch out for number one. Take care of yourself or nobody else will. Jesus said, blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who live moment by moment surrendering the control of their life to him. And the expression of that outwardly is they live moment by moment in submission to others, relating to others, considering them more important than ourselves. And the bottom line is this is simply who Jesus is. Read the Gospels. This is Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's how he described himself. Look at Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You hear it? Take my yoke, learn from me. Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. The world says, you do that, you a doormat. Everybody's going to walk over you. You'll never get ahead. Jesus said it's just the opposite. Blessed are the gentle. They're the ones that are really going to inherit the earth. So when we look at Jesus' life, we understand, we see it in this text. Jesus saw people. Jesus served people. Jesus sacrificed for people. And that's really what it looks like. Let me, let me give you three statements. Christ-like submission sees people. Christ-like submission sees people. It communicates attention and value. Submissions lis- submission listens more than it speaks. Christ-like submission serves people. It looks to meet needs in the lives of others, identifying a need and finding joy in meeting it. Christ-like submission sacrifices for people. It means I'm willing to give up something I value for the benefit of others. If we begin to live, allow Christ in us. Listen, it's in response to brokenness. As we're before him, God begins to break us. And when we experience that brokenness, the outward manifestation is surrender to him, submission to others. Last question, and I'm done. What, what's the promise to those who are gentle? Did you hear what he said? Blessed are the, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I think it communicates a couple of things. First of all, it's satisfaction today. Did you hear how you said? Blessed. 
blessed. What does that word mean? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's being filled to the fullness. It's being satisfied in the fullness of God. The world says, watch out for yourself to get ahead. Jesus says, be gentle and you'll be blessed. Your cup will be full. There's satisfaction today. Here's the other thing. There's security in the future. Did you hear what he said? Blessed are the gentle. They will inherit the earth. Here's what that means. It is true. This world's not our home. But there's coming a world that is our home. And the way Christ in us is fleshed out is gentleness. And he says, man, those who are gentle, they will inherit the earth. What if, what if we as Christians, in the midst of a hostile, divided election season, what if the defining characteristic of our lives was in every way I relate to my coworker, my neighbor, my boss, my spouse, my children, my friends. In every way I relate to them, I consider them more important than me. Blessed are the gentle.